Hi everyone, this is John Hagedorn, and welcome to 1001 Stories for the Road, also known as Caffeine for the Curious, and your home for good old-fashioned entertainment. It was all hype that day, a massive staged event, but like a baptism or a coronation, it had to be, because it meant so much to so many people. A lot of things had stood in the way, a costly war, politics, weather, money, Impossible terrain, floods, breakdowns, accidents, pick any one. It also might have been the first big media event in America. An entire nation recently divided by a civil war, but no longer. And now divided by thousands of miles of barren plains, rugged mountains, and hostile deserts, was about to be joined from coast to coast by rail an achievement that would spark the growth of America as an industrial superpower and bring its people and products together in a way that nothing before could have done. Everyone present at this event, including the telegraph operators who would wire the four-letter message, done, to both coasts at the exact moment the final spike was driven, was enjoying watching the process unfold, knowing they had a ringside seat to history in the making. It was May 10th, 1869. There were over 600 people gathered there for the ceremony in Promontory Summit, Utah. They were as good a cross-section of Americans as you would find in any city in America today. And from the fat cats to the poorest laborer, and good guys to bad guys, the pride in what they had accomplished, or what they were witnessing, was on display. According to news accounts, the mood was happy and celebratory for all. Company K of the U.S. 21st Infantry, the legendary Buffalo Soldiers, en route to the Presidio in San Francisco, were on hand to join in on the festivities in Utah. Twenty-one women, some wives of officers and visitors, some unmarried, and four young girls were present, according to news accounts. Railroad workers, laborers, and chief executives were present, as well as two Wells Fargo stage drivers just finishing the last runs on their routes. Before the railroad ties were to bind east and west coast together, the trip from New York to California took nearly four months, much of it by wagon. Some people never made it. By rail, this time would be reduced to under six days. Back then, it was a life changer. All these people present that day knew it as surely as they knew the sun would rise tomorrow. It was time for a celebration. Two locomotives stood on the track facing each other, cowcatcher to cowcatcher, permitting a narrow space between the two which had been created for the driving of the golden spike that would symbolize the completion of the railroads. With those locomotives were their engineers and crew. The two locomotives represented the two hard-driving, oftentimes ruthless companies that undertook and invested in the risk of building the railroads. The Central Pacific Railroad, which had built the rails eastward from Sacramento, California, to this point in Utah, and the Union Pacific Railroad, which had laid the rails westward from Council Bluffs, Iowa, which at that time was the westernmost point any railroad had been able to venture. Although their similar work met there in Utah, the two companies, their founders, their labor, and their use of funds could not have been any more different. The Central Pacific was managed and owned by four investors, one of whom, Leland Stanford, the newly elected governor of California, would participate in the ceremonies this day. 
Stanford, who had a reputation as a hard-driving and feared business mogul with political aspirations, would later found Stanford University and give much to the state of California. The Central Pacific, for its labor, had used thousands of Chinese immigrants who had been pouring into America from the Guangdong province of China, where extreme poverty and the ravages of the Taiping Rebellion had made life brutal. They came to America with hopes they could build a new life alongside Irish and Mexican laborers who shared a similar dream. They worked hard. They were paid less than most of their counterparts, but could still hang on to about $20 a month after food and lodging. A fortune compared to what they had left. They cut and blasted through the Sierras and the Rockies, filled in washes, built trestles, built bridges across streams and valleys, and laid miles and miles of track through mountains, desert, and plains. Independent contractors provided the lumber for the wooden railroad ties that the rails were driven onto and supplied food, while U.S. cavalry or their own security units often fought off Indian attacks. The Central Pacific's greatest challenge, besides the rugged terrain and the Indians, was keeping their labor force. Many were leaving the camps to hunt for gold and silver, joining prospector camps in the mountains that promised a chance of instant wealth. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Union Pacific Railroad was led by a former cotton smuggler named Thomas C. Durant, a name that will be familiar to viewers of AMC and now Netflix's Hell on Wheels, which gives a fairly faithful but fictionalized version of the UP's history in lane track from Iowa to Utah, borrowing its name Hell on Wheels from a nickname for the tent camps that followed the progress of the railroad as it laid track. Camps that offered every kind of vice imaginable to the workers, for a price. Durant was in the business of lining his own pockets in every way possible, from cheating the U.S. government and the railroad's investors to short-paying his contractors and labor. He employed Union and Confederate war veterans, blacks, and Irish immigrants. Mormons built much of the track through Utah, entering a contract with Durant in hopes that the railroad would bring them new commerce. Durant would later stiff Brigham Young's people, as well as his laborers, who walked out on him in Piedmont, Wyoming, delaying their arrival at the celebration in Utah until Durant could swindle $80,000 to pay them. But on this day, May 10, 1869, few people cared about Durant and his swindles, as the champagne flowed and a party atmosphere prevailed. Eight Chinese workers were given the honor of laying the last rail. Three of these men, Ging Kui, Wang Fuk, and Li Shan, would live long enough to return to be honored at the 50th anniversary of this momentous event. All eight men attended a special dinner this day with the road's construction chief, J.H. Strobridge, in his private car and recalled with him what it had taken to make it this far. Alexander Topance, a contractor who was present at the ceremony, described it this way. On the last day, only about 100 feet were laid and everybody tried to have a hand in the work. 
A special train from the West brought Sidney Dillon, General Dodge, T.C. Durant, John Duff, S.A. Seymour, a lot of newspaper men, and plenty of the best brands of champagne. Another train made up at Ogden carried the band from Fort Douglas, the leading men of Utah Territory, and a small but efficient supply of Valley Tan whiskey. It was a very hilarious occasion. Everybody had all they wanted to drink all the time. California furnished a golden spike. Governor Tuttle of Nevada furnished one of silver. Governor Stanford presented the gold spike, a silver spike, and an iron spike from Arizona. The wooden railroad tie was made of California laurel. When they came to drive the last spike, Governor Stanford took the sledge, and the first time he struck, he missed the spike and hit the rail. What a howl went up! Irish, Chinese, Mexicans, everybody yelled with delight. He missed it! The engineers blew their whistles and rang their bells. Then Stanford tried it again and tapped the spike and the telegraph operators had fixed their instruments so that the tap was reported in all the offices east and west and set bells to tapping in hundreds of cities. It was a great occasion. Everybody carried off souvenirs, and there are enough splinters of the last tie in museums to make a good bonfire. When the connection was finally made, both railroads ran their engines up until their pilots touched. Then the engineers shook hands and had their pictures taken, and each broke a bottle of champagne on the other's engine and had their picture taken again. You can find the golden spike on display at the Cantor Arts Center at Stanford University. In a way that few other material things can do, it represents a time, a day, and a moment when Americans came together to achieve the impossible, opening up a huge new land of opportunity to the dreams of all those from different races, creeds, and colors who were willing to take a chance at a life better than the one they'd left. Some went back to where they had come from, but many stayed because their chances were so much better here. They fought adversity, overcame obstacles, and raised generations of Americans to follow. Their descendants today would probably tell you that May 10, 1869, when the country was finally linked by rail, paving the way for travel from coast to coast in less than a week, and opening up a world of opportunity and jobs was one of America's best of times. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road, where every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we release a new episode for your listening enjoyment. Some, like this one, recall America's best of times. Others take you around the world of human experience and history. 1001 Stories for the Road was inspired by our big brother, 1001 Heroes, the research for which has turned up a treasure chest of great stories, too short for our typical 45-minute shows at 1001 Heroes. And these stories, averaging about 15 to 20 minutes each, needed a new home. So we created 1001 Stories for the Road. We're available 24-7 at iTunes, our terrific host, audioboom.com, and everywhere great podcasts are found. We have two other 1001 shows out there, and we encourage you to give them a try. Those are 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. You can catch all our 1001 network shows and archives, including this one, at www.1001storiespodcast.com. And we encourage your posts at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Stories for the Road. We'll be back real soon.